0: Welcome to the Talberg Foundation podcast series, New Thinking for a New World. Host Alan Stogo welcomes leaders from around the world to explore the issues that are challenging and changing their societies. From climate change to democracy under siege to geopolitics and beyond, we are looking for ideas that can make all our lives better. Like a great magician, the pandemic has drawn our attention away from things that are hiding in plain sight. One of those has been the plight of millions of refugees and migrants who are in refugee camps or trying to escape from war, violence, poverty, or other scourges. Today, we'll get a view of what's happening in those camps. My guests are Myrto Zanathapoulou, who recently was in Lesbos, Greece, on a fact-finding mission. Mike Dekanachuk, neuroscientist who works in the Zatari refugee camp in Jordan, and Megan Lopez, who heads the International Rescue Committee's work in Latin America. Thank you for joining me. Mirto. let's start with Lesbos. You were there very recently after the fires, and you've been there much over the last couple of years. What are conditions on Lesbos today?
1: So I was there recently. Already things have changed. When I was there, there were over 9,000, 10,000 people um, in the streets. With little food, little water, and nothing else. So it was pretty dramatic. There was uh, roadblocks on two sides of the island, of the, of the road, and literally people, you know, stretch across uh, miles and miles of, uh, of, of pavement, you know, on the road. Um, within a week, the government managed to erect a new refugee camp. They're calling it temporary, but it, this is yet to be seen. And by now people have moved there. Um, and what we were discussing, Alan, when I was there, what, what is important, I think, is to remember, you know, I mean, this, this dramatic, uh, conditions that we, that we saw at least opened the, the situation to, to the rest of the world. As you've said, not only because of the pandemic for many different reasons, um, the refugee crisis, solidarity and, uh, you know, anything related to, caring about what's happening to these people has been out of sight for many years now across the world, I think. In Greece as well, we've moved from almost um, extremes of solidarity in 2015 to hostility in most parts of the the country uh, in 2020 for many reasons. Um, So at least people got out of the camp and were uh, available for us to see, to see that their families and children, uh, vulnerable people, uh, not threatening, Um, and I think this is an important thing to keep from this uh, dramatic situation that I've seen.
0: Mike, you've been back in Zatari now after having spent much of your lockdown in the United States. What are conditions like in what, after all, is a very large and very permanent camp? No one believes it's ever going to disappear, even if, in theory, it is a temporary facility. What are things like in Zatari? The mood of the camp is the most palpable thing that has shifted.
2: There's not a lot of movement. There's a noticeable decrease in people's moving about in the main market areas. There is relatively high compliance with public health ordinances around masking, etc. But there's certain elements of social life that when you're in a confined environment, you know, you're not going to change your life that dramatically. And living conditions are already quite cramped in many, many parts of the camp. So there's only so much that people can do to prevent an outbreak in a place like that. Conditions in the heat, there's only so much time that people want to spend inside their houses too during the day. It's pretty sweltering. And as the winter approaches, it's the other problem. People aren't going outside very much. So the Zadri is sort of a product of its environment, right? People's movements are dictated by the weather, not so much by public health and by electricity and by cuts and stuff like that. But overall, you know, conditions remain touch and go because, Policies changed pretty dramatically and pretty fast as far as movement restrictions. How big is
0: Zatari? How many people live there? Right now, Zatari hosts about 75,000 refugees. And is the camp open or closed? How have the restrictions brought by the pandemic affected flows in and out? Jordan began a pretty total
2: comprehensive shutdown on March 17th, including a closure of all land and air borders for traffic in and out of the country. The exemption was for commercial traffic through Saudi Arabia, the West Bank, and Syria mostly. And a lot of the movement restrictions included a pretty blanket shutdown for the first two weeks of any and all movement. So it was basically a comprehensive curfew and lockdown every day for two weeks. Initially in the country, bread was distributed by school buses and municipal buses at the level of each neighborhood, and that included the camp people were confined to their homes. After the first two weeks, things started to shift a little bit and certain um, sectors were allowed to reopen partially, uh, but not transportation and things like that. At that point, Zaatari was, um, people were not allowed to leave. Staff were still not allowed to come in. No NGOs were allowed to conduct activities with the exception of very limited number of primary health activities. Even all mental health activities were moved to telehealth wherever possible. And restrictions on movement were placed, a total lockdown from 6 p.m. From sunset to sunrise, basically uh no entry and exit from the camp. It stayed that way for about two and a half additional months and then slowly certain uh ngos were allowed to operate inside the camp at a limited basis with very restrictive social distancing policies where only fifty percent of personnel and uh spaces you know fifty percent capacity for all spaces in the camp with ensuring social distancing and A lot of organizations working with children and youth and schools that's virtually impossible so schools um attempted to start up again in august but are now in this kind of convoluted system where students are in alternate days and only you know 10 to 15 in the classroom at a time and that's only for up to grades three and then for those taking the taujihi high school exams all other learning is done remotely ngos are as cases rose in jordan in sort of mid to late september the ngos were restricted once again and brought their activities back down to lower capacity and activities were all moved online again and sort of time will tell if it'll stay in an online system um, or not there was about a month and a half when refugees who had labor permits to work in agricultural and construction projects outside the camp were allowed to do that but again in mid-september as cases rose in municipal areas um, in major cities urban areas in jordan those restrictions on movement outside the camp were placed again. So refugees were not allowed to leave the camp. And that's where things
0: stand. Megan, the situation in the Americas is quite different. What are the conditions, particularly in Central America, Mexico, on the one hand, and around the Venezuelan diaspora, on the other hand?
3: Sure. So we do do have one camp. Um, in, in the region that we can define truly as a camp, and that would be the Matamoros camp at the US-Mexico border. What we have is pockets of people in movement and trying to, um, trying to find safe haven in their movement. Uh, if we look at Central America and Mexico, our biggest concern has been that in response to the pandemic, we have seen a lot of really well done public health measures have the incredible impact of cutting off all resources for vulnerable communities. And where we've seen states enforce militarized curfew, militarized quarantine, at one point um, in several Central American countries, people had not been able to leave their houses for 60 days. We also see that that non-state armed actors are also enforcing those quarantines. And so that sort of belt of control just has ever tightened um leaving those who were most vulnerable before and who may have been contemplating movement or were in movement and not yet in a safe place in an even more dangerous situation and seeking even less regulated ways to to flee if we look at uh, venezuela and colombia you know in colombia we have a case where the government has really done what we want a government to do to help um, incoming uh, asylum seekers refugees migrants Uh, They've tried to facilitate many different legal um, ways of Venezuelans being recognized through a variety of different mechanisms. But the reality is those measures have not been enough, um, in part because Colombia hasn't received enough support. Um, And we've seen that as Colombia tried to tighten their own public health measures, people were forced into, uh, again, crossing in ravines and... And blind spots, and where Venezuelans had been trying to subsist, living either many, many, many people to a one-room apartment or in in dangerous situations. Um, we saw busloads of Venezuelans choosing to return uh, to Venezuela, saying that as the situation got worse and xenophobia spiked, and they preferred simply to die in their own country instead of dying in Colombia, which they saw as the only path forward. So. We see that this, uh, of course, has made vulnerable people much more vulnerable. And it's created sort of this shadow pandemic where there's the big global pandemic, and then there's the impact that everything we've done to try to respond to that pandemic has had on the most vulnerable.
0: I want to pull on a positive thread and a negative thread. Let's start with the negative thread first, which is the one you just ended with, Megan. Uh, The consequence of now months and months and months of this pandemic on vulnerable refugees, migrants. What are the consequences of the situations that all of you have described? I'll frame
2: it with two general thoughts and that'll make a couple of really acute cases more relevant and the the point quite clear. You know, there's a lot of politicking around the protection of vulnerable people in the time of COVID. It's become fodder for both the left and the right. If you can figure out who's vulnerable, you can lambaste your opponent for saying how they're not protecting the vulnerable. And at the same time, you can elevate yourself by saying, that look what I'm doing to protect the COVID vulnerable, etc. What's lost in a lot of that politicking is a legitimate discussion with people who are supposedly on the receiving end of this protection, talking about the comprehensive nuance that protection means. Protecting someone in the time of COVID does not simply mean restricting their community from having an increase in COVID cases, it also means ensuring livelihoods and sustainable access to critical services. It also means ensuring that education and psychosocial support remain provided. So protection of the vulnerable in the era of COVID is a very nuanced game. And often the people who are supposedly being protected are left out of that discussion and defining what protection means for them. And it's incredibly infuriating for them as individuals and for the communities that they're living in. The second thing is that there's still a relative disbelief among, quote unquote, protected vulnerable communities about the severity of COVID, about what its implications might be. So you have incredible enforcement of certain very restrictive policies, including militarized policies that are forcing refugees in Zatari and other places, for example, to go through illegal means to get out of the camp, to get access to their jobs or perform their exams or things that they're supposed to do to continue to maintaining to what little dreams they had and abilities to provide for their families. So they're doing that at greater risk, and at the same time, there's still not a clear evidence to them as to how dangerous this is. So the calculation of the vulnerability of refugees purely from an immunological perspective is also a complicated game. Because yes, there might be crowded living conditions, but a lot of refugees also think, I'm young, I can handle this. Or they read a thousand bits of misinformation on the internet that says, well, smoking doesn't matter, obesity doesn't matter because there's very little regulation of information flows in certain places, including in refugee camps where everyone and their mother is in 10,000 WhatsApp groups. And also no discussion with the refugee of what it means to them to feel protected by their host state or by their NGOs that are working with them. It's simply, let's make sure that we're keeping this virus away from you and pretty much to hell with everything else that you need because this is what the world's attention is about. That's what it feels like. So really briefly, in the past week, I've had one person Uh, who I know in the camp, undergo a psychotic break because they were pending a resettlement decision from the UN. And pretty much all global resettlement has been stopped. And that was the one thing keeping them there. That was the one thing keeping them there. And by there, I mean on this earth. So they basically had a psychotic break. And the emergency room doctor, who has seen many, many cases of an increase in psychosomatic complaints over the past several months because of COVID, said, I can give people medicine. I can give someone who's acting out diazepam to calm them down. What I can't do is give them meaning. Second, I've seen an incredible increase in domestic violence. It's going to happen when people are stuck at home, when jobs are being lost, when people can't access pre-existing jobs, and when kids don't know what the hell to do with themselves
0: when their already shitty schools are now moved to online. Mirta, let's switch back to Lesbos. The fires are probably the ultimate expression of frustration and desperation. The evidence appears to be that they were set by some of the refugees themselves uh, as a way to get the hell out of the camp. If there's no camp, I'm not in the camp.
1: Of course, to relate to what was being said by Mike before about the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic is the least of their worries has been since the summer. There's been a series of lockdowns as well in Lesbos and in all uh, camps, in all islands, as well as in the mainland because of this. Uh, it's, I mean, as an excuse, uh, it's being used to, you know, to protect them. But obviously this is to protect the rest of the population from them. So the pandemic is not a priority, is not a worry in these, uh, for these populations has never been. Everything had to do with, uh, the, the future of, you know, their own future and their living conditions, which are absolutely were and still are absolutely horrific. Um, I have talked to a lot of these people and to a lot of NGOs over the years. Uh, it's always been difficult and always been dramatic. It's always been a situation of, if I can generalize it, of uh, terrible living conditions, a lot of uncertainty, lack of communication or explanation of going to happen to them. Lots of waiting for their asylum decisions because Greece is an entry point and this it's seen as an entry point by you know the refugees and migrants themselves. Uh, so this is there's a lot of waiting and waiting and waiting, you know, while doing nothing, even those that were more fortunate enough to be housed in apartments through UNHCR programs in Greece. There's always been a lack of integrational policy or anything related to, you know, helping these people, even from, an, you know, still on an asylum claim process. Um trying to get to know the community, learn the language, learn some skills, do something with themselves. This is a program, you know, the programmatic design failure that's been across all of these multi-million programs that have been running in Greece and elsewhere. So this is, I mean, I guess an emergency by design politically. We want to treat it as an emergency. We do not want to see it, you know, to the next day.
0: Megan You've already mentioned desperation if people returning to Venezuela, because if you're going to die, you may as well do it at home. Uh, That's pretty desperate. Do you see as a consequence of the realities, the policies, the prospects? After all, we've now had two successive American administrations that have been hostile to migrants in one way or the other. How desperate are Latin American migrants?
3: Well, I agree a lot with what Mike was mentioning before. Um, I think that one of the challenges is as we, as we try to create programming or respond to these populations is that so infrequently, we do look for the migrants' response or the refugees' response of, of what it is that they need. And in doing that, we're very focused on the outcome. So we're very focused on the, will they get asylum? Will they, where will they end up? And we forget about what is, what is pushing them in, in movement. And the reason that I say that is because as you look at Central America, it doesn't matter what migration policy you put at the U.S. border. People are not running to something. They're running away from something. And so you can put a wall. You can, you can make it so that we de facto stop the possibility of asylum seeking at U.S. borders. And that's not going to stop somebody from taking a 4,000 mile journey through multiple gang territories, through narco-trafficking territories. Uh, it's not going to stop a woman who knows that she's fleeing from gender-based violence and going through some of the most dangerous areas in the world for women. It's not going to stop because that's not the point. The point is the reality of where they are is known and the possibility of something better is there. And that's what's, that's what's pushing the movement. The reality of, of the risks that people face, where they're coming from, Covid is this amorphous thing, and especially where public health measures were working very well initially in Central America, people were not so concerned about getting it because they weren't seeing people get it. But they were continuing to live with their reality. What is the reality of where you're living? It doesn't really matter what the challenge will be. You're willing to risk it. So we see that in the Central America up to Mexico corridor, and and with the hope of reaching the U. S. border, though that's ever ever reducing. And then in Colombia and Venezuela. You know, there's this long historic exchange between Colombia and Venezuela of crossing across the borders as as there's need based on conflict and, and situations in both countries. And so the initial movement uh, felt very comfortable. The cultures are very comfortable, even, even the language and, and slang is very comfortable on the border. And as things have become shut down, you have engineers, you have uh, lawyers, people who have risen out of poverty in Venezuela through the economic boom they had, now unable to feed their children. I will never forget um, the story of, of this woman who was the first in her family to graduate from high school. She became a lawyer and she tells the story of, of sitting in her white shirt with her stamp, which if you know anything about Latin America is powerful to have your stamp that you get to stamp and approve things. And so she was sitting at her desk with her stamp. And, and she remembers that moment of pride. And then only months later, they had only rice that she was trying to feed her daughter and watching her daughter lose weight and they fled. And when she crossed the border, she had to sell her hair in order to be able to pay for her family, which again is a, an incredibly impactful cultural decision. And she was propositioned as a prostitute. And so her whole vision of herself is destroyed. And now she says simply, I sell avocados. So we just see this this radical transformation of people and and when you ask about what you know what is the impact going forward um i'm a nurse practitioner and and i look very much at child development and that has been sort of my area of focus of, of looking at transgenerational experience of trauma this will be borne out for generations and generations and these are generations that have already lived through significant trauma
0: Let me now try to pull on the positive thread, or at least slightly positive thread, that Mirtu introduced a few moments ago, which is the destruction of the Moria camp made the front pages. It's the only big refugee story, big migrant story to get attention. And it did produce, as Mirtu already said, at least some policy response. We'll see whether it's real or Memorex, but some policy response. Do, do you see positive in this anywhere in terms of potential reaction from people who could and governments that could help try to move the policies in a more positive direction? Mirta, I know you're a little optimistic. And, and then and then Mike, I suspect less so.
1: I don't know if I'm optimistic anymore. I mean, even...
0: Uh... You mean since we started this conversation?
1: <laughs> no, since the last time I, I said this. Um I mean, recently there's been, again, road blockages increased by people refusing to host in hotels, paid by the European Union, you know, unaccompanied minors that in like two weeks would be leaving for Europe. So even this is too much for certain people. I mean, amongst the 13,000 people, there were at least 5,000 children and we saw so many dramatic photos of them. That always makes a difference. You, You remember the whole story with Alan Kurdi back in 2015 and the immense response that got these were different times but still powerful images make a you know have power make a difference um i cannot be too optimistic i'm afraid uh i think these these things last very you know very little and uh people are in camps and we tend to forget about them
2: mike so three three quick reactions to that the first is that Attention is still political fodder. Attention is usually not about the end user, the person who self-immolated, the person who burned their camp down. Attention is still largely political fodder for different groups of policymakers, white people, whatever group you want to t- say call it, to talk about the problems of poor brown people who are suffering and how it fits into their narrative before whatever election cycle is happening. So attention still doesn't actually mean anything. Second, most refugees that I work with they rarely have access to the intricate policies that are affecting their day-to-day lives. Most refugees know I can't leave the camp because there's someone sitting at the door with a gun in his hand, and that means I can't leave. They don't know what decisions are going into that, if it's a public health decision, if it's a security decision, what it is. So an act of self-immolation isn't a targeted policy protest in the same way that we see sit-ins for the death of Breonna Taylor, that has a clear decision and an outcome
0: that is desired because of an act of desperation. Megan, in the Americas, Uh, Any reason to believe that outside the United States, other governments are willing to act in a more positive way, or has their willingness been corroded by the sheer continuation of the crisis?
3: Well, absolutely. There are other governments that are acting in a positive way. If we look at the response to the Venezuela migration, it has been Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Brazil headlining. They are the response. The international community has not stepped up in the ways that have been requested. If we look at how much is spent, we have 8% or 20% that has gotten funded of what the asks are. And if we think about even just dollars spent per Venezuelan migrant, we're looking at about $120. And if we compare that to the Syria response, it's about $1,500 per migrant. I only give that number because we know Syria is not reaching what people need there. And so to think of that radical reduction of what's happening, happening in Venezuela, it's, it's a comparison point. So yes, we are seeing governments step up and do things. Um, part of the problem is that we are in the hemisphere of the United States. And so we are always caught in the policies and internal debates and ideologies that, that run current in the United States. And so if there is concern or lack of ability to ensure that um, black and brown people within our own borders are protected and uh, receive access to justice and access to the resources they need, we're definitely not meeting that when they start bumping up against our borders. Um, i have to giggle mike when you're talking about you know the the millions of whatsapp groups i mean we saw when there um when there were big peaks in migrant migration around the region that there were these whatsapp broadcasts that nobody could figure out where they were coming from of people sharing information sometimes accurate sometimes not about how people could move and and different strategies and so combating that access to information and providing trustworthy um, accurate, timely information is really key. And when we've done needs assessments with populations on the move or migrants or refugees, that is always something that comes up, that people just don't know what even exists, what their options are. Um, a strategy that that we have found to be successful is look to those people, make them part of your team. Um, we We have an effort that we do with a number of other NGOs called the Global Signpost Project, which is that. Put out a website, put out access to information so that all of the different actors, large and small, international, local, can provide their information so that people know where they can go and find information that is real, because the rumors are rampant and people are having to make quick decisions. And so I think if we go back to this idea of of how you include migrants and people who are on the move and, and looking to truly empower them, it's it's letting them have the information to make the decisions that will be best for them. And so if you ask for a ray of hope, that's where i see a ray of hope in the ways that we can figure out how to at least give everybody who's involved equal status in decision making and equal access to information to be able to do that.
0: What would it take do you think to change attitudes in the destination countries, in Europe, in the United States, elsewhere? In a direction that would begin to cope with these massive flows that are only going to become more massive in the years ahead.
3: From the Americas, that's a really hard question to answer because for so long, Latin America has been a political football that has been manipulated through through U.S. government policies. Uh, not looking at any particular administration, we can we can pick how far we'd like to go back to see how how the the discussion around central america latin america has been used Um, you know i think i think in order to change attitudes some of the realization has to be um better storytelling from the people that are living through through these situations a lot of the things that we see about about the americas is very much kind of Kind of refugee porn in the sense that it's these like oh these poor people you know look they're dirty they're you know on the side of the road or we see pictures of central american migrants and, and if you watch twitter feed when that was happening with the with caravans a couple of years ago why are they wearing that why are they dressed so nicely and so you know this this kind of this far externalization where it becomes inhuman and it becomes this this block this monolithic block I think limits the compassion. In the current environment, it's hard for me to see how we could have a radical change in perspective.
0: Mike, you think about empathy all the time. Is there any chance? Um, Yeah, this is a tricky question. I mean, it's really different based on
2: the destination country. Um, So sitting here in Amman, Jordan, this isn't necessarily a destination country in the minds of many of the refugees that are here. They're here as asylum seekers, not as legalized uh, sort of convention recognized refugees. And it's a very different ballgame in that sense. And many of them have hopes to get somewhere else, either through formal resettlement mechanisms or other mechanisms. So I honestly am increasingly of the opinion that you can tell whatever stories you want. This isn't it's not going to change a damn thing. Right. Um, Because empathy only gets you so far when you simultaneously feel threat. So I think that it's in a large part a generational sift. When people of millennials and Gen Z are simply moving away from the notion of the nation state. Uh, and I think that we're going to see an increase in that. You know, the idea of nation states is is a uniquely post Westphalian, you know, European construct that then expanded through colonialism. The idea of passports is not that old when you compare it to the history of wars and the history of migration. So there's a certain degree of humility and also surrender that things are going to have to change on a massive scale. Because cosmopolitanism is not going to stop, and the flow of individuals from poor countries to rich countries, from religious countries to less religious countries, from brown countries to white countries is going to keep happening at a massive scale due to things like climate, due to things like economic inequality, and due to things like conflict. So until populations surrender, that they are no longer the owners of their countries by by bloodline, I don't think anything's going to change.
0: Mirto, last word. You are, as you said before, you, Greece, are the door to Europe through which everyone wants to walk. They don't want to stay, but they want to walk. The border closed, so they stay. How can attitudes change in Greece towards more integration?
1: In terms of programming, obviously, integration is key. We cannot be burying our, you know, ourselves in the sand. That applies to many of the European finance policy programs because no uh, national money is being spent, it's all European. So a switch to integration, a switch to a narrative of empowerment, of resilience of these people is, you know, everything that we have to gain from uh, their presence here, I think is key. I think uh, empowerment and resilience and what we have to gain as a society is is important.
0: Thank you, let's leave it there. Uh, I wanna thank you for participating in this conversation today, but also for the work that each of you is doing To try to put a human face on this basically human problem, we tend too often to treat it as a numbers problem. We exaggerate, as you just suggested, Mirto. At the end of the day, it's about people, and that's in each of each of you are trying to make are trying to work with the issue at that level. And I think that is absolutely phenomenal. Again, thank you very much. Thank
1: you.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.